0: Okay, so this morning, first, a word of thank you, uh, Jimmy, Josh, you know, in the last year that I've been here, this will be my fifth time preaching, which is, uh, in 51 weeks, I preached this will be my fifth time, and that is one more time than I was allowed to preach in five years at my previous church, so... uh, What I'm trying to say is that as you're thinking of Christmas presents, you know, for Jimmy and Josh, just know you have great pastors here who are not territorial. uh, And, you know, you should take that into account when, you know, you're handing out Christmas bonuses and gifts and stuff. All right. That's all I'm saying. So let me ask you a question to get us started this morning. Have you ever been attacked in some way because you were standing on your Christian principles and your Christian beliefs? Jimmy says, amen, some heads over here nodding, See some heads over here, he's been attacked just for standing on Christian principles. Well, 2 Timothy 3, 12 through the first part of 14, Paul says this to young Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, that's just going to happen. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, convicted of. Your your, your conviction leads you to live a life that is different from pagan living. Hopefully. Christian biblical beliefs ought to lead us down a different road. And so pagans and Christians are naturally going to live very different lives. And I'm using pagans here just as an all-encompassing term for all non-believers. But it's a word that Peter uses a lot in 1 Peter, so I've just adopted it for this morning. So our Christian way of life and the non-Christian way of life, they naturally conflict. That conflict inevitably leads or invites attacks by the pagans towards us. This shouldn't surprise anyone. And Peter mentions this in text that we're uh, not going to spend any time in, but just to read it, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It shouldn't surprise us that we're going to be attacked. And yet it seems to. So, What do you do when being faithful to God invites the attacks from the people around you? And to start us off this morning, I think I've noticed just a general pattern over time and in studying of history and stuff, a general pattern of how the conflict seems to play out and seems to escalate as it plays out in in human to human terms. So I'm limiting myself to people attacking people and people being attacked by people A little bit here in this particular idea it starts with the fact that the conflict starts with the fact that we confuse the pagans they don't understand why we don't live the way that they live and as a result the conflict starts to take place and it starts to escalate over time Uh, and I, I noticed four big steps here. These are in no particular order, but if I had t- to say in my own experience and research, I think I've noticed them happening in this typical order. One, oh, that turned out a little bit smaller than I was hoping, the temptation uh, from the pagans towards the Christians. We're tempted to sin. We're tempted to give up our moral convictions and join the pagan person in their way of life. It's the easiest way for them to uh, set the world right in their own minds. If you start off being confused and you're trying to resolve your confusion about why this person doesn't live the way that I live, why they don't engage in some of the things that I engage in, tempting them to engage in that is the simplest way to actually resolve the conflict in your own thinking. Get people who don't do as they do to do as they do and they won't have to be confused anymore and potentially confront why they do what they do. And if we give in to the temptation and we join them, they, they don't attack any further because you know they're no longer confused in their own minds. We acted as they acted, so the world and their point of view is right and undisturbed. But if we stand firm in our faith and we don't join them, the temptation in step one escalates to step two, verbal attacks, harassment, slander, the, the Christian, the believer who holds ethical and standard practices, refuses to practice sin, and it's like the, the, the pagan person turns into a feral animal, threatened and backed into a corner. An animal puffs itself up and starts making noises and hissing and trying to make itself look threatening so that the predator, in their own mind, backs down. It activates a kind of flight, fight, flight, or freeze mentality, right? Right? Those three options, and if they can't f- fly, they'll fight. Puffing themselves up in verbal attacks uh, tend to be the first form of actual attacks, I think, uh, at least the most common. I think today this probably happens predominantly online for most of us. Uh, people, l- scared cowardly people online attacking and harassing, accusing, slandering, in any way trying to silence people uh, who seek to ruin their fun in their own minds. And uh, it happens a lot. And if, if you somehow just stand up to the, the slander and the harassment, you might get a second form of verbal attack, emotional manipulation or emotional blackmail. They'll paint themselves out to be the victims. Your words are violence. You heard that? You seen that online? That's a big thing going around these days. I'm hurt. I'm harmed by your words. So you should be made to stop. Why? Because you have a moral conviction that some action is wrong? That is a form of verbal attack. And I don't think most of us naturally conceptualize it as an attack. It is designed to paint themselves as the victim in order to gain a measure of power over you so that they can force you to back down from your own moral convictions. If they can, they make you feel bad enough that you join them in their sin. And it moves kind of backwards to that temptation aspect. And you know what, I I think this is not just a matter of, you know, necessarily being just a faithful believer in Christ. It's like anyone these days who holds to just Judeo-Christian conservative values in general tends to be harassed and slandered by people online. And if you're online and you notice this type of stuff, it happens all the time. I was actually sitting uh, down writing this outline on November 6th on a Monday And I'm sitting there thinking, it's like, what's a good example of this? And my my phone buzzes in my pocket. And I was like, whoa. I, I looked at it, and it was an article about a new speaker of the house, Mike Johnson. And it was this article that basically claimed in the title that Mike Johnson and his son watch pornography together. And then when you actually read the article... It's Mike Johnson and his son have apps on their phone so that they can see each other's internet access to hold each other accountable so that they don't do that. And so there, there was, through the use of a title and an article, and this was going around that day, some of you may have seen it, they were slandering and harassing our new Speaker of the House who's claimed the Bible is his belief system and everything. And so you, you see this from the moment you reveal yourself to be a believer, those attacks are going to come it seems like anyone who gains a following for conservative thought will eventually have to deal with step number two. You will have to deal with unjust harassment and slander today. But if it's true that anyone who just holds to general Judeo-Christian conservative thinking suffers slander, how much more will we who have sworn our allegiance to Jesus directly have to deal with such slanderous accusations throughout our lives? We should have a higher ethical standard than just our Judeo-Christian principles in general. But if somehow you survive the verbal attacks, you kind of move on to step three. Social attacks, shunning or canceling people, ostracizing them, uh, doing whatever it takes to cut off the voice and the presence that impedes the pagan. Canceling people is like the modern form of shunning If you can't send them away in exile, if you can't ignore them or something, ostracize them socially and be done with it. And if somehow you suffer through and uh, maintain your faithfulness to your convictions and to the Lord in all three of these, physical attacks are typically the last stage in general. Beatings, imprisonments possibly even martyrdom. So what you see here in this picture is uh, an iconoclastic account of Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts, being hauled out and stoned to death. Paul is the one on the far right watching it and approving it. And Stephen's physical attacks come after Peter and John have already been arrested and harassed and Uh, socially attacked and all this stuff in the book of Acts, but they're allowed to go free. So when Stephen, in his convictions, tells the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin and stuff that uh, essentially the same things that Peter and John have already told them, he gets taken out and physically attacked. So it it tends to climax in physical beatings. And what I'm getting at is that uh, I, I think Peter's audience is primarily going through number two and three, On this list, verbal attacks and social attacks, but I I do think it's possible that Peter's audience may on some level be experiencing number four, physical attacks. Uh, We just don't know the specifics with certainty, but I think it's equally possible that in our culture today, although the brunt of the attacks we will face will be verbal and and social, we're already starting to see evidence that physical attacks are actually coming and going like waves they're, they are present. And so I, I think this makes First Peter as a letter an enormously important for the, the warfare that, that is still carrying out today between God and his enemies that is played out on a human level between those who give loyalty to God and those who give loyalty to the devil, God's primary enemy. And those are the two categories. And these are the two categories in the background of Peter's thinking. So we're gonna dive into First Peter And uh, we're going to compare some first century Christian suffering here with uh, modern day Christian suffering in our lives and see what we can glean about how to actually respond here this morning. So before we dive into the text, let's talk about 1 Peter as an epistle. You you might not believe this, but it was actually written by Peter. It it wasn't originally called the epistle of 1 Peter or anything, but it was written by uh, 1 Peter is it first his, his first epistle i know we're not gonna spend any time on that uh because it's so obvious that only really scholastically minded people could doubt that peter actually wrote this letter but they do uh one of the reasons they they doubt the letter is that it, it doesn't sound it sounds so much like paul but i think probably one of the reasons it does is because in five twelve, peter says i'm writing briefly to you with the help of silas who is silas Acts 15 through 18 mentioned Silas many times. Uh, he, After the, the church council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 met and answered the question, do Gentiles need to be Jewish to be Christians? And their answer was no. Silas was one of two men, along with a guy named Judas, who was tasked to deliver and read the apostles' letters throughout the Gentile churches that uh, Paul had established on his first Mediterranean journey. So, he was a very trusted person by all leadership in the early church. Besides that, he traveled with Paul on a second missionary journey for a little while. So, this is a guy who's familiar with Paul, Peter, and James, the three primary leaders of the Jerusalem Council, and who is trusted by all three of them throughout his ministry to do certain things. Because he traveled with... uh, Paul on it, I think the influence of why this letter sounds so much like Paul, why it uses language that only Paul uses, is easily answered. It was a very common thing for guys like Peter, who were backwoods country Jews from the north and Galilee. I mean, he's a fisherman, not an educated person, but is using really proper Greek throughout this letter. Uh, why? Because everybody used what was called an amanuensis. Uh, A secretary, somebody who you say, I I need to to write this letter. I need it to be about X, Y, and Z. Help me do that. And then you kind of sign the end of the letter with your own name and your own, if you can write and stuff to prove that it's actually you. But you let the Emanuesis write it in almost whatever terms he wants. If Silas, according to 512, is the person who's doing that, that makes some sense of why this letter sounds so Pauline. Um... The letter is a Catholic or universal letter, not Catholic in the sense that Roman Catholics like to call it. Catholic is just a word that means universal, no need to freak out. Uh, What this means is that the the letter is composed to a larger area of Christians than a specific set of churches or in a single area. Paul, for instance, would write to the churches in Galatia, a city, technically a province or something. What Peter's going to do is he's going to include a bunch of different provinces or sections, uh, multiple cities and stuff all in here. So he's writing to a much bigger group of Christians. It's the difference between the audience being the churches of Greenville, Texas, or the churches of the greater DFW Metroplex. So he's writing to the latter category. Paul typically would write to the churches of Greenville if you wanted to use that example. So because of that, it's much more, I would say, applicable in many more scenarios, but it's also broader in the context of what's going on here. Let's look at a map. The location of the audience, Peter is writing in 1-1, he says, to the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all encompassed in a a term called Asia Minor, but you can see them there, some of them on a map, kind of that he's writing more to the western side of Asia Minor, if you follow this but it doesn't necessarily exclude the rest of the areas. So he's writing to this group. Why is he writing or where is he writing from? Uh, let's deal with that question. He's either in Rome or we don't know where he's at. Why do, why do I say that? Well, because in 513, he mentions she who is in Babylon as a veiled reference to Rome. She who is in Babylon greets you. He's getting to the closing of his letter here. And he uses this phrase, and it very much sounds like his location is with the people in Babylon, which in their day is not literal Babylon. It is a way of referring to Rome. To call Rome your ancient Jewish enemies without Rome picking up on the fact that you're calling them your ancient Jewish enemies. If you're there in the city, at the heart of the empire, you might not want to necessarily aggravate them too much directly so this becomes a new testament way of saying rome without saying rome his language of saying she who is in babylon really does sound like he's there with that people that church and they send their greetings along with him in this letter to the churches in asia minor so to chart it out on a map he's writing to the group in the circle from rome all the way on the left that is the best historical reconstruction we can make about when and where Peter is writing from and writing to. The time frame of his, his writing, we just don't know for sure when the epistle is penned. Commonly assumed to be around 64 AD with Nero burning Rome, and this is a picture of that. The, the problem with that interpretation, I think, is Peter talks about the churches in Asia Minor suffering. He doesn't mention any of suffering going on in his own life. He doesn't mention anything whatsoever going on in, in Rome. Uh, so dates around like 64 to 60 AD are all the most reasonable, but so were dates as early as the 40s and 50s, if you can think that Paul would travel that far in that short amount of time. It has to be after the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council. So I'm not really going to put any specific date on there. Uh, again, they try to date it late enough in, in the 60s and stuff because the idea that his, his language is so similar to Paul seems to mean to, to most scholars that he had time enough to familiarize himself with Paul's letters. So they date First Peter to be after the dating of Paul in some of his letters. I don't think that's strictly a necessary conclusion because of Silas's presence as a writer of this letter. He helped him compose this letter. So it's just it's just not that necessary. So what's going on and why does Peter write to this group way over in Asia Minor? The Christians in Asia Minor are no longer fitting into Roman society. I I missed a word there. I deleted a word. No longer fit into Roman society. And they're suffering for it. They're being persecuted for it. Peter wants his audience to understand that the conflict is natural. Uh, It is, in fact, a a part of what God has planned. He wants to make believers more like Jesus. And Jesus suffered at the hands of pagan people. So are, are you and I really going to escape The same things that Jesus himself did? No. And this is uh, fundamentally Peter's point here. Just as Jesus was glorified after suffering, one day we will be glorified as he was in resurrection life. Until that day comes, endure suffering. Endure the persecution. Endure the verbal and social attacks. And if it escalates and physical attacks come, you're just going to have to endure that too. So these Christians, they grew up in Asia Minor. Now the thing about Asia Minor is, it's a place where emperor worship was taken particularly seriously. In the Roman Wars, about two generations before the events of 1 Peter and, and the events of the apostles' ministry, Asia Minor was just in complete and utter shambles. And the Roman Wars made it worse, but Octavius... Caesar came in and ended the Roman Wars, and he brought peace and stability and economic prosperity again to to Asia Minor. So they were going the wrong way. Caesar comes in. They start going the right way. So they were very, very loyal to Caesar. It was part of the culture. But now that something's happened. They've changed their loyalty from Caesar to Jesus. They've given their faith to Jesus instead of Caesar. And because of that, the Romans think that they're disrupting the normal Roman life. Roman life was about worshiping the gods, including the genius of Caesar. So they see Christians as an antisocial threat to the stability of the empire and the world that they know. So what do they, what do, they do? They're trying to find a way to deal with a threat. The gods established peace through Caesar. And now these Jews are invading our territory and saying that this other God that we don't even know is establishing peace through some carpenter guy from Nazareth. Didn't we crucify that guy? I'm pretty sure we did. I'm pretty sure Caesar had that guy killed. Uh, Why should we worship him? These questions and these things are going on. and, And it was the very people that grew up worshiping the emperor in Roman culture that uh, are, are now suffering at the hands of this. So, Peter's trying to address this suffering here. The suffering in 1 Peter is, is primarily verbal attacks, like slander. Social ostrac- ostracization and uh, harassment is definitely happening, if not full physical persecution. So, I think that's happening on some level, but it's probably not the most important thing that's happening to him if we read uh 3 13 through 16 of the same letter peter says this who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good and i think there he's, he's questioning like you're not yet there in physical harm yet is somebody really going to harm you for doing good but even if you should suffer and so i think he sees it as a possibility if you should suffer for what is right you're blessed do not fear their threats do not be frightened but in your hearts revere christ as lord always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And there I think he's saying you're already being spoken against, you're already being slandered and probably ostracized. Are they really going to attack you for doing good to the empire? And the answer is possibly. But, you know, if so, you still need to remain faithful. So Peter's letter is designed to help his audience understand the world at large around them and their specific situation from God's perspective so that they do not cave to the pressures on them and become apostates. Abandon loyalty to King Jesus just to get out of suffering difficulties at the hands of the pagans. So when loyalty to God invites pagan attacks, God invites us to endure the attacks and remain loyal until he puts the world right again. Suffering humiliation now will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I think Peter's point seems to be just outlast your opponent through faithful and godly living. And eventually God will put the whole world to right. So this is going to be what the text we're going to cover at the end of 1 Peter is trying to summarize again. So let's look at the text itself this morning and dive into it. All of you... Clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and sober minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power and glory forever and ever. So what's going on in these verses is that Peter uses really short imperatives, which are commands, right? Revolving around, what do you do to remain faithful to God? Despite the pagans' attacks, he's going to tell you, "Do this," and here's why. So let's dive in a little bit to his reasoning here. Verse five: Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Right. The proper mindset is humility. Humbly accept the reality of the situation that you're in. Who are the? Why? Because he quotes from uh, Proverbs three thirty four. And he says, look, God opposes the, is for the humble, but opposes the proud. So who are the humble and who are the proud? The humble are those who submit to God and do his will. That is a summary of who he's imagining the humble person to be. So the proud person is the exact opposite. Anybody who fights against God's will and refuses to submit to God is proud. Just like the devil that he mentioned specifically in verse 8. So he's categorizing people here, which is why I didn't start in verse six where most people would. I started in the middle of verse five and uh, why he quotes Proverbs three thirty four. 34. Uh, he puts people into these two categories. The proud is ultimately anybody who aligns themselves with the devil. The humble is ultimately anybody who aligns themselves with God. So humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Now, this is an interesting thing here. Uh, I'm not going to read you this, this whole big quote, uh, but, but the point of the quote is that humility is, in this case, not a quality of character one embraces, but a position in the world assigned by others. This isn't a very obscure little Greek uh, passive. where, where he's, When he says humble yourselves, he's meaning accept the position that other people are putting on you. Rome was an honor-shame-based culture. It was better to have honor and nothing else than to have everything in the world and not have honor. And what Rome is doing to these people is saying, you are bad, you are wrong, and we dishonor you. We shame you. And Peter is saying, you should accept that reality. Accept that you're going to be shamed by people. Accept that they're going to look at you and do this to you. I think Joel Green in the Two Horizons New Testament commentary on First Peter just does an excellent job pointing that out. He's the only person I came across who actually made that point. I thought it was a brilliant point. So Peter's idea is to accept the humiliation that is offered by the pagan world around you. Why? That he may lift you up in due time. The idea of God's mighty hand, that that is language in the Old Testament of God's saving work in the Exodus. So Peter's tying the, the language here to the idea of saying, by accepting the humiliation that others place upon you now, that's actually how God is going to exalt you later. He will lift you up in due time. And when is due time? When Jesus returns. And according to verse 10 that we've read, that's after pain and suffering. But while you're going through the struggle, verse seven, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. So the advice here in this command, cast all your anxiety on him, and it is a command, is, is, is actually don't get stuck in fight, flight, or freeze like your opponents. They're stuck. That is an emotional response, literally in the, in the emotional part of the brain, which is not the last final place you actually process information and data. That's your logical brain right here uh, behind the eyes and the forehead. So typically when people think, they're like, they look focused. And and people who are constantly thinking, especially like me who are internal processors, they kind of have a mean look on their face. Sometimes it just means they're crunching their, their eyebrows up because they're thinking about something in that part of their brain. Instead of an animalistic part of your brain, an emotional part of your brain, Fight, flight, or freeze. So our way out of this emotional trap is to give our emotional struggles based on our circumstances back over to God so that we don't respond in kind to the pagans and attack the pagans back with their same weapons. We don't do a very good job of that in, in modern Christianity because this, this is an immature form of relationship. Fight, flight, or freeze. Emotions are not your highest form of humanity. A puppy has emotions. What makes you any different from a puppy? The fact that you can push past your emotional response into a deeper part of yourself, a logical, accurate, thoughtful place. And Peter is saying, you need to get there. So take your emotions and cast them back on God. Get them out. So Peter's advice for dealing with the suffering is develop a healthy prayer life. Wouldn't that be a novel concept, right? I mean, golly, because what are your only other options? The only way to avoid the war is to give in to sinful people, renounce loyalty to Jesus, and to take up a life of sin all over again. That isn't avoiding the war at all. That's just joining the losing side. Peter doesn't want anybody to do that. So he's giving you the advice of saying, I, you're, you're, gonna be, you're human just like your opponent. Your opponent's stuck in this lesser state of being. You should rise above. Here's how you do that. So we, we get these um, commands in verses 5 and 7 basically boil down to, to this. Accept uh, your humble position just as Jesus did. And two, express your feelings about your circumstances to God so they don't control your actions. Your feelings are not supposed to control your actions. You can tell an immature person by how much they respond emotionally, but there's more to it. You actually have to follow some of the other commands in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, be alert and sober-minded. These commands have actually already been mentioned twice by Peter if you read the, uh, all, all, the whole book. 1.13 says, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. He's saying nothing different from that statement in one than, than what we're covering here in chapter five. He's summarizing everything he's already said, but he also said it in four seven. The end of all things is near, therefore be Alert and of sober mind, so that you may what? Pray. So, we should not divorce the ideas going on in chapter 5 from prayer. It is fundamentally about having a prayer life that can actually make you alert and sober, getting rid of the, the, the scary emotions so that you can stand on your convictions and your faith. So Peter repeats these commands over and over again, so I'd say they're pretty important. Would you say that you have a vibrant prayer life, that one that is on alert from the attacks of the enemy? You need one. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So what does the devil devouring look like? It might not be quite what you think here. In, here in First Peter being devoured by the devil is not about him killing you he will kill you if he can but that is not his first attack and that is not his, what he really really wants because what he wants is he wants the Christian to cave to the pressures brought on by his pagan followers and he wants you to abandon loyalty to Jesus that abandoning loyalty to God for temporary social safety that is being devoured by the devil Dante here in in, uh, the Divine Comedy didn't quite get this devouring picture right, you know? But uh, this Renaissance picture of it later on is graphic, but you have to be on alert or else you're going to abandon faith in Christ. Here's a question. He's picturing the devil as a predator. What do predators do to get their next meal? Use these pictures as context clues. What do predators do to get their next meal? I, I, I'm hearing attack. Uh, hunt. hunt. How do they hunt, though? What do you notice isn't there in these other pictures? <laughs> singled it out. Others. Singled out. Good, Ronnie, good. They, they pick off the weakest in the herd by trying to separate the prey f- from the safety of the group. Then they pounce. That is what predators do. And I think that most people in modern day... And, and it was the temptation back then in First Peter's Day for sure. Most people make themselves much more vulnerable to being devoured by the devil through the attacks of social pressuring because they separate themselves from the community of God. They take it as a relaxed kind of thing to go to church and to be faithful to the Lord. Because of that, there's, this, there's, there's always a divide between the common Christian in our day and age, and if the devil can do it, he wants you to walk away from the group. That's, right. That's, right. that's how he's going to hunt. That's how he's going to prey on you, and that's how he's, if he can, devour you. Separate you out from the community. I hate the statistic that goes on in modern churches today that anybody who goes to church once a month is considered a, a faithful church attender. That that should be a disgusting notion to all Christians. Your faithfulness to God is not when you want to be faithful. It doesn't work that way. And if you're just going to be faithful when you want to be faithful, all that's going to happen is that you make yourself an easier target for the devil to devour you. So when you feel the pressure in your personal life, are you quick to miss church? Do you know where you're going to be on a Sunday morning? Does everybody else know where to find you on a Sunday morning? Or is it going to be like, well, you know, Saturday was a long day. I'm kind of tired. I don't really need to be there. Besides, that guy was really rude uh, last week, and he told me going to church was for losers, so why would I want to do that? I mean, you're just going to walk away and make yourself easily devourable. So that, to a certain extent... Loyalty to Jesus can be measured by the degree to which we are connected to others in the faith. Man is a social being, believer or not, but believers are are united in something far deeper than just circumstances. Our belief is that Jesus is the real ruler of the world, raised from the dead and made king over everyone. What are we doing trying to, to come and go as we please? That is not treating Jesus as the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. So cling to the community of God in good and bad times and you'll more easily survive the attacks of the devouring devil when he puts pressure on you from the pagans. Running away from the community and refusing to persevere in regular church attendance is not being alert and sober-minded. It's making yourself easily edible. So since the idea of the devil devouring somebody is that they leave the faith by giving in to pagan pressures brought by verbal, social, or even physical persecutions rather than endure them, Peter's command in verse 9 naturally follows. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Why? Because, you know, we'll get there. (laughs) How might we understand the idea of resisting the devil? This is language that's remarkably close to James 4. Uh, again, Peter and James knew each other. Uh, in, in James 4, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's a little bit different here because Peter's idea is don't give the devil what he wants. He doesn't mention anything about him fleeing from you. In fact, quite the opposite. The idea seems to be if he's going to stick around, endure it no matter how long the devil going to stick around putting the pressure on you. Don't give him what he wants at any point. What he wants is for you to decide it's easier to give into pagan living than godly living. Don't give him that. This is true of individuals. This is true of churches. You know, but the good news is, or at least a part of the good news is, that none of us have to do this fight alone. None of us have to struggle this way. You know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So let me tell you something that might surprise you. Um, You are not special. I know, Ronnie, that's... (laughs) You, you are, to quote a friend of mine from Colorado, you are wonderfully and beautifully ordinary. <laughs> the rules of the universe, all cause and effect, apply to you as equally as they do to everybody else. You will struggle, you will face pain, and you will hurt. And While you do have to hurt, you absolutely do not have to hurt alone. There is absolutely no reason to ever face any moment of struggle in Christian living or or pagan attacks alone, because we're all going through the same struggles as we're trying to live out faithfulness to King Jesus. No one is unique. No one is special in this regard. Not only each of us here in this community, but each and every community throughout the world where Christ has been preached and faithful communities have been established. So with the community, graciously given by God for our support in troubled times, why would you invite the trouble of the devouring devil into your life by divorcing yourself from God's given community? Doesn't really make sense to do that, does it? And until Jesus is finally revealed, we will have to endure the pain and the sufferings of the pagans' verbal and physical attacks. Just as every Christian generation has done before us, but it is easier to endure Together, Amen. Amen. That is standing firm in the faith. You don't have to resist him alone. Let, let me tell you a secret that I wish somebody had told me a lot earlier in my life. Um, you have to be tough to be good. If you're not tough enough to stand up to evil, you cannot be good. Because... Evil will walk all over you if you let it. You have to fight evil, struggle against it for evil to lose. You have to risk offending people to stand for something. What are your Christian convictions and are you tough and good enough to defend them? To quote Josh from like three weeks ago, where's your brass cojones, man? You got some brass cojones? He used that phrase and it was like the same thing. You have to be tough to be good. He's gonna, he's gonna verbally attack me for using his own word. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this quote is attributed to Edmund Burke. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And I think w- whether or not Edmund Burke actually said it because there's an argument to be made that that's falsely uh, accused to him, and that was actually John Stuart Mill in 1876 in his address at University of St. Anne. I don't know. I'm just covering my basis here in case I'm misquoting. Our country knows and has always founded on the idea that you actually have to stand up to, to, to people. So never, ever let anyone emotionally blackmail you into caving on your own Christian convictions because they want to silence you for the sake of giving in to their own sin. But from what I can observe, the overall state of Christianity here in the West is that that is exactly what we do. We cave the second conflict comes up from our convictions. And, you, and we're not good like God who never caves to evil. It's, I think that's particularly true, true here in America. Never let anybody emotionally blackmail you into caving. Because here in America, we're supposed to be freed to speak up without government retaliation. In 2010, I was in Oklahoma at a pastor's conference and I was listening to a pastor from China in the underground church share his struggles and what was going on with his congregations there underground facing physical persecution from the Chinese government as well as the verbal and the social persecution. And the MC at this uh, um, conference, he stood up at, after the pastor had, had, had done Sharing, he stood up and he says, what we're going to do now is we're going to take some time. We're going to stop. We're going to pray for you and the people in China that you get your freedom in that nation. And that Chinese pastor boy, he stood up and he said, do not do that. We don't want our freedom. And exactly. I saw that. Look, everybody in the room, including myself, was was stopped and were like, why wouldn't you want your freedom? So the MC asked him that question. And his answer hit me between the eyes, and I've never been able to forget it. He said, we don't want to become like you Christians here in the West. Wow. It, I think it was his way of expressing how they were going to fight and struggle in their context and their community, but also how they perceived our lack of fight, our lack of resisting here against the devil, against pagan ideas and against pagan culture in our part of the world. It's obvious to the rest of the world that Christians here in America prefer to live for their comfort than to actually live for Jesus Christ. So resisting the devil is never about comfort, but God is comforting in the midst of those circumstances and that suffering. And there's no reason not to face that. And if you have the goodness of God inside of you, to form convictions on right and wrong and the goodness to stand on that right and wrong, it will naturally lead to this conflict and you will have to endure the conflict and the hatred and people saying nasty things about you. It's just a necessary. And the reason we can struggle through all of this stuff together, through all the persecutions, is because we can stand firm on what verses 10 and 11 say. The ultimate reason to accept the invitation to endure is that God will win the war. Yes. Verse 10 says, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, and you're not special, so you're going to suffer. I'm going to suffer if in, indeed we want to live for Christ. And after we have suffered a little while, God himself will restore, make strong, firm, and steadfast. Most of your translations are going to put, make you or y'all uh, Restore y'all, make y'all strong and firm. The word's not actually there in Greek. So it it may be tying more to verse 11 uh, to the sovereignty of God and the rulership of the world rather than actually applying it directly to people. But look, the point is this. If you can resist the devil, you can achieve some level of partial victory over the powers of evil now and, of course, in the future. But even now, you can resist the devil and achieve some victory. But one day God will finalize his plans for the cosmos and he will bring about an everlasting victory in King Jesus that will put an end to pain and suffering and will leave behind only eternal life, only eternal fellowship with God and with one another without the pagans being involved. And the humble, obedient, and the proud rebels are currently in this fight, fighting it out. And we will do so until, in Peter's own language in this letter, Jesus is revealed So until that day, suffering is unavoidable, pain is inevitable, and pagan attacks are just as inevitable. But God's final victory over evil and injustice is just as inevitable. So we hold on until the time that God brings the final victory. We must remain faithful to him now, and we must endure whatever attacks come our way. And quite frankly, do what Peter does in verse 11. Break out into praise. Uh, I call verse 11 doxology dos. Now that's Spanish for two. Okay? Why two? Because this is the second time he's making this point in uh, Peter. He's not saying anything new at the end of his letter. In 4.11 he says, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And here in 5.11 he says, to him be power forever and ever. Amen. And that's sovereign power. That is the power to rule the land. That's what sovereign power is. God claims this for himself. He and he has put his king on the throne with all authority in heaven and earth. That's sovereign power. So if the world really does belong to our king, why should we fear lesser powers like the devil and people who are influenced and controlled by him? Why should we cave to them? Should we not instead give our allegiance to the one whose power cannot end? The one who will destroy the power of the devil? the one we claim we already align ourselves with? Why are we constantly vacillating back and forth and caving from our own Christian convictions every time we face a fight? I think we got it backwards. But see, let's be honest and let's be fair. We're Christians living in a fallen world. We're fallen beings ourselves. So we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And while we struggle to live obediently, to God in a pagan culture, what types of things can we do to fight back? Fight back, right? Because it's, it's pretty obvious that Jesus never allows his followers' physical attacks back, right? His version of righteousness is far beyond this. And so let me summarize Peter's advice. Some, most of this is what we've already said, but let's summarize it here at the end. The types of things you can do, number one, always be developing your Christ like character. Always be working on being like Christ, in trying to understand who Christ is, what he's like, and doing the same things as him. Because responding to the pagans in a self righteous way is, isn't going to get you anywhere. Right? I think we know that. That's pretty obvious. Nobody likes the person who thinks that what they're doing is being done because they're such a wonderful and righteous person. <laughs> if you've got your nose stuck up in the air, nobody's probably going to listen to you. So that whole humility thing comes into play here. Accept the, the, the situation placed on you by others and don't try to escape it. They're not going to like you. You don't need to be liked by nobody except for God and hopefully his people as well, right? So you can express the same humility that Christ expressed and accept the situation that you're faced in. But let me add to what humility probably means. Be vulnerable. You can share with your own accusers how hard it is to actually struggle against sin in this life. You can willingly share your own struggles, even with your opponents. And admitting that sometimes you just want to give in, that you just want to like live a a life that's just as sinful and selfish as they do sometimes? First off, you do feel that way. I know because you're just like me, and I feel that way. And, and admitting it to, to, to these people, man, it, it takes away their weapons. Along with confession. Confession is a little bit different from vulnerability because it's, it's actually about you can admit even to your attackers when you actually do fail. You can admit, I'm trying to live up to this standard. I'm trying to be like this, and I don't because of X, Y, and Z. And when you do this, you take their weapons away. You disarm their pagan attacks. They don't know what to do with that. They're more confused than when they first started because they thought you were a self-righteous person. They thought you were somebody who's looking down on them. But if you're humble enough to be verbal, uh, vulnerable, and and confess uh, your own crimes against your own God, you disarm them. And they don't know what to do with you. And they didn't know what to do with Christ. So they killed him. Number two. Develop a consistent prayer life. That's a big one. You you need to, to pour yourself out to God. Confess your sins and be emotionally vulnerable to God. But the other side of prayer is that you need to let God pour himself into you. The conviction. You need to let God pour into you the conviction it takes to endure the suffering. If you're only talking to God and not listening to God, you don't have a consistent and vibrant prayer life, and you'll never be sober and on alert. Ever. Most of us think prayer is me talking to God, and it is, but prayer is actually a meditative idea of you actually listening to God in return and opening your Bible and praying about the text and praying about what you're reading and praying about what you're learning and trying to meditate and understand it. A consistent prayer life casts all the anxiety of your situation onto God and it creates that sober-minded and alertness so that you can go on humbling, humbly responding to God in more than just fight, flight, or freeze in an emotional state. Push past your emotions. They will be there. Give them to God, but push past them and let God build in you a more consistent character. But while you're going through all this stuff, absorb the unjust attacks, as Jesus himself did. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, quoting Isaiah 53, 9 from the Greek. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So, refuse verbal retaliation. And if you have a consistent and vibrant prayer life, your anxiety is being cast on God, you can resist the the fight, flight, or freeze response to attack back. So you don't fight fire with fire. In this regard, that's not what Jesus did, and that's not what we are to do either. And then finally, and this is kind of a big one, I left it to, uh, to, wait, 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 let me understand. You have to endure and you have to take the verbal abuse without retaliating by giving verbal abuse, right? They're trying to bait you. They're trying to trap you. Don't take the bait. Accept that you're being attacked, humbly accepting that circumstance, And know that you can trust God and not need to attack the way you're being attacked. Answer with respect, answer with honesty, humility, vulnerability, and confession about why you're living in a way that confuses them that's not like everybody else's way of living. If you went and read chapter 3, 13 through 18, you'd come to this exact piece of advice in Peter's uh, letter. I'm telling you that because I don't have it up on the slides. Okay, and then finally, and this is a big one because this is really, really the prominent thing in our culture. Don't cave to social pressures, but continue in God's community. Endure the social pressure by being socially connected to God's people. Don't let yourself be canceled. Continue to grow faithful through the hard times. Stop prioritizing comfort over conviction, discipline, and growth. And be present and involved in a local church. Suffer and serve alongside other believers. And you will find that you are actually enduring in God's life. And that is God's invitation to you. Aim for the long-term benefits and accept the short-term pain now. So I return to my original question. What do you do when you face suffering uh, unjustly and unjust attacks at the hands of pagan people? who are morally wrong. You accept God's invitation to be like Jesus, and you endure the attacks until he brings the post-suffering victory. And we can do that together. Yes. Are you willing to do that together? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we need you in this life and in all that it takes to follow after you, God. We pray for your spirit to teach us the conviction that it takes to be like Jesus and to stand up to evil and not let evil rule us and to be like you, good enough not to cave to evil. To stand firm regardless of the consequences, and be faithful to you, knowing that one day you will in fact bring the victory. So, God, may we all, by your grace, this week identify the battles in our own lives, how we're attacked, and how we need to endure those attacks, and how we need to fight back and counterattack with humility, vulnerability, and confession, so that we may faithfully follow you to the very end. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.